welcome back to Grey the Code. Woo! This is episode 95, and I'm here with my great friend, Jamie Hampton. I'm so glad to be on the show and be with all of my friends, and I'm here with John K. Sowers. Thanks, Jamie, and I'm here with lovely Jessica Kerr. Good morning, and today we have special guest Heidi Waterhouse. Hi, folks. Heidi is an experienced professional communicator, deeply invested in getting information to people who need it in the easiest way for everyone involved. So she does speaking and blog posts and technical writing. And at one point, she had this lively calorie-based description of full disk encryption. She wants to scale (laughs) her philosophy of simple and empathetic communication by teaching others. So she does developer advocacy, speaking, writing, craftiness, and maybe she's working on a book. Sorry about that. Books are hard. Books are hard. (laughs) Heidi, welcome to the show. Thank you. What is your superpower? My superpower is being able to remember where other people set things down. I wish I had that superpower. What about <laughs> what about where you set things down? No, <laughs> no, no, not where I set <laughs> Only where my family has set things down so they can wander by and say, hey, where's? And I'll know. I mean, it's practical. <laughs> yeah, I don't want that superpower. I just want my my other people to have that superpower oh for you (laughs) if people could find things for me that would be nice but that's just not how my life works yeah my mother-in-law has that superpower and i used to make fun of my father-in-law because he like wouldn't even move his head he'd be like where's my whatever it was but then i realized he's right why bother looking she knows (laughs) she's like oh it's just to your right oh that thanks yeah that's pretty much how it works (laughs) Uh, i often wonder how they fend for themselves when i'm traveling how do you do it? Like, how does the superpower work? It's a visual memory of, wow, somebody's going to want to know where that is in a minute. <laughs> so I so it's like actually, a, a it's picture. almost like, I think it has to do with the future, though. I think you have like a future sense because you Ooh. know that people are going to are gonna want it. Yes, I'm expanding I, your superpower <laughs> for you, Heidi. <laughs> I can precognitively tell that somebody is going to wonder why they put their sneakers in the laundry room. So I could move them out of the laundry room and put them someplace logical, or I could just like look into the future and realize they will want their sneakers. Can you also tell which class is going to need to be configurable? So you should make it like more flexible than you otherwise would make the code? Yes. And the answer is always, it is going to expand and multiply beyond your conception of it as right now. So you should always make everything configurable and also put a feature toggle on it so you can turn it on and off. I think Heidi's an oracle for real. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. I um, I call it my crazy futurist hat. And nice. it's actually just my hair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I, I think in three years, this is what's going to happen in software. And I'm frequently right. And I don't understand how that works. But uh, I think it has to do with like just ingesting 40 conferences a year. Oh, yeah, that would do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now we have to ask you what software going to be in three years. So in three years, we are going to have customized software that allows us to set all of our accessibility needs as we need them, because there's a problem where accessibility needs conflict, where some of us need larger type and some of us need to have it read out loud and some of us need larger buttons and some of us need tab and Sometimes they don't interact well. So we're going to have that. We are going to have a 
privacy revolution in the next three years, and it's going to be super painful. Lose a lot of things that we've counted on and come to expect. But I think that the groundswell of movement of people realizing how much we've given up is is gaining momentum. So when you say we're going to lose things that we, uh, we don't like losing... I think we're going to lose Twitter. I think Twitter is going to live journal out of our lives, which precisely dates me. What did live journal do? They got bought by Russian oligarchs and we left. Yeah, it was like MySpace and everything else before Facebook killed it, killed everything. Right. So they added too many ads to make it usable and people emigrated and we will never have live journal again. DreamWidth is interesting, but different. And so I think we'll lose Twitter the same way. And I can't, I literally can't imagine how I do my job without Twitter, but we'll find something. It'll happen. Oh, LinkedIn will love that. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you think that people are going to go after Twitter? Or like, what kind of thing are they going to go to after Twitter? Well, I thought for a while it was going to be Mastodon, but Mastodon has some like deep security problems of its own. Federation seems like a great idea if you trust everybody who federates. <laughs> but I don't. So then I'm, you get that your security is like the minimum of all the feder feder right. feder bits. Yeah. So that's going to be a problem. I think what like I'm hoping it's not going to happen because I don't even have an Instagram account yet. But I think it's possible it will be some sort of mimetic transmission device based on images rather than words, because we have the bandwidth to do that. That shuts out a lot of people who don't have the bandwidth to do that, but we're terrible about thinking about those people. Oh, and the accessibility. So if we get good at typing descriptions for our images. It might work, but we won't, because most people are not suffering enough to make them change their habits. Ooh, but maybe if our main information stream is image-based, maybe we'll suffer more because we want to like look at it in the car or faster or or oh, something. And and so then more people will suffer minorly. And so they'll actually do the descriptions. Right. And then we'll make the descriptions easier to do. And we'll like let you voice the description. Ooh, or I love that thing that Apple does with the with the live photos where it picks up just that snippet of sound. So now I can like take a picture and narrate it. Ooh, that, that would be cool. cool. I mean, yeah. it sounds also like hell, but um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the next hell? That's the question. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, what fresh hell? I, 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 I'm trying not to look at Twitter first thing in the morning because it's like, what does the fresh nightmare machine bring me today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've laid off we- Twitter for a while because of that. Mm-hmm. I can't quit Twitter because I have an addiction problem, but I've made my Twitter really good. So it's not like I understand why other people think it's a nightmare world, but my Twitter is like mostly artists and animals. Like yes. Instagram. My Twitter is like Instagram. Yeah, I just I was like, I already have followers. I don't want to move. I'm just going to recreate Instagram with like my timeline. Heidi got rate limited on Twitter last week. I did. I got too enthusiastic <laughs> tweeting a conference about site reliability. <laughs> it was the irony is so deep. I didn't even know that you could get rate limited on Twitter. Oh, yeah. So if you're tweeting a lot, say like 80 plus tweets an hour, and you have a hashtag that other people are tweeting on, you look like a bot, evidently. Oh. That makes sense, I guess. A bot with a crazy futurist hat. Exactly. 
Oh, also just a throwback on episode 84, we talked with Orrin Shaw about Mastodon and Federation and a whole bunch of issues related to that. So if folks are interested in, in d- diving into that more, they can go back. I know. Heidi, that conference last week was so amazing. And you just said it was about site reliability, but, but, but it was about resilience and resilience in people as much as in software. Yes, it was super cool because it was very much like we are not just maintaining machines. We are maintaining ourselves and learning how to be both flexible and strong in the face of all sorts of things. Like there was a talk about mindfulness and there was, oh, there was this amazing talk from Maddie Stratton about how to think of PTSD in an organizational sense. That sounds amazing. It was super good. Like, you know, and and it's so true. I'm writing a talk about how uh, organizational process is a scar that is a response to some bad stimulus. But this was about how organizations get hypo or hyper reactive in response to a perceived threat. Right. And he said that trauma was when you have a perceived threat and your response to it doesn't work. And that humans are particularly suffering from trauma, unlike zebras, because that perceived threat can just be the memory of a threat. And it's like just as bad. Right. Because we have a prefrontal cortex and we can actually like predict and remember things. So our ability to make patterns makes us more vulnerable to trauma because we're like, well, this is like that other thing. And organizations totally do this. They do. They're like, oh, well, let's let's totally respond to that other thing that we were worried about last year that is not at all the problem we're encountering now. And you think it's hard to see the trauma that someone else has experienced and causes their reactions to you now? Try seeing it in a network of people. Yes. On the other hand, if it's one person experiencing trauma, there are things that you can do to help by making them safe. It's really difficult to make a traumatized team feel safe. Yeah. Because everything gets harder at scale. Yeah, it's harder at scale because they sort of uh, reinforce each other's reactions. Yeah, we've talked about some of these issues before. Like, I think Oren was also talking about when she goes into organizations and can sort of detect some of the psychoses and biases and neuroses that the organization has developed much like the the PTSD. And I'm sort of imagining a nascent field of like organizational therapy. That oh, yeah. Doesn't Bob Marshall developed. do that? Flowchain Sensei on Twitter. Huh. Oh, check that out. Yes. I think if we think about our work as relationships, which we frequently do, we're like, I'm breaking up with this company. I, I think we should also think about how we could do therapy altogether, which is Similar to, but unrelated to my theory that when I leave technology, what I'm going to do is get a uh, therapy certificate and just specialize in Git-based trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone laughs when I say this and then they think about it because somebody needs to understand why it was so bad you did what you did and like absolve you. That's true. Somebody needs to delete your ref logs. When you say that, Heidi, it reminds me of, I don't remember this person's name, but he was one of the original developers for Atari. And he was talking about how he spent a lot of time just coked up and coding. And then after he did that and then Atari crashed and burned, he went back to school and got a degree in, in um, counseling. And now that's what he does because he's like, I realized like how easy people can be screwed up, especially in this industry. And as a person who's been there, I want to help them. So that's what he does now. That's awesome. Okay. So we talked about the transition from coding to therapy. Heidi, did you have like topics you wanted to talk about? So I was thinking about that and like, what do I care about enough to put on a podcast? And the answer is everything because all of my caring goes to 11. 
But one of the things that I find fascinating is the developer relations community. And I was wondering if you all were interested in hearing a little bit about that. And also it relates to another talk from Redeploy, which I thought was going to be about Opera, the browser, and was in fact about <laughs> Opera, the, the musical format. And I'm forgetting the presenter's name, and I should have pulled it up. But uh, she talked a lot about a camarada. It was you. It was you. You look so professional now. That's so funny. Sorry. This is the best. Can we take this part out where I embarrass myself? No, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have waited. I want to see what you were going to say. No, I'm going to keep saying it, but now I'm going to say, oh, sorry. I love this. Not, this is awesome. Can you see my face? I'm totally blushing. Like, Heidi is embarrassed, but everyone else is pleased. I'm sorry for you. We love surprises. Yeah. So anyway, the the idea of the camarada, and I keep thinking about how that relates to developer relations and how we're forming this uh, both in-group of people who do this and have this shared experience and also a best practices routine for like, how do you do this? How do you understand what you're doing? This, This job title is so new and so amorphous that it's sort of like saying, I'm a people wizard. Like, what does that mean? You could be a people wizard in that you turn people into frogs, or you could be a people wizard in that you turn people into more wizards. I I don't know. <laughs> so developer relations is this moving target, and I define it as an interface between the company and the people who are trying to use the product, both up and down. And we have a developer relations Slack, which is our camarada. And we spend a lot of time talking about things that you would expect, like exactly which neck pillow is best. We care so much about neck pillows. Like you would not believe the, the depth of research that goes into to travel gear. But also, how do you understand yourself as part of marketing or development or product or uh, communication? We're all of those things. And how do you deal with stresses and pressures that most other people don't have. I'm sort of fascinated because a lot of these people end up running conferences too. And we're sort of doing this rapid iteration and cycling and feedback on like what a good conference is based on whether it's good compared to the 30 other conferences we went to this year. And it's so fascinating to me that this is what we're doing. So when we talk to each other, we all assume like this, this base level of expertise and we don't have to like, there's a good way to say this do a do a uh, status comparison but we're also always kind of like are, are you doing it better than me you have a way i could steal are you doing something smart i want to see your smart thing and i've been posting some articles like since last year called uh lady conference speaker this or lady conference speaker that which is just like things that i've learned but there haven't been a lot of women talking about the fact that going to after conference parties is a different experience for women or people perceived as women. And the last one I posted was like lady conference speaker, 14 travel tips. And some dude was like, yeah, it turns out those are good travel tips for men too. And I'm just like, welcome to my world. It turns out that gendering things or using the unmarked gender of masculine doesn't actually affect the usefulness of advice. 
I hope you enjoyed that, sir. I don't think he actually got it, but <laughs> <laughs> it was a good moment. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, it, the, the travel tips, they're, they're all but two of them are like completely gender neutral, but that's how so many women experience the world. We're like, okay, those 12 tips are good, but these two tips are completely ridiculous for someone traveling alone as a woman. So. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that post. Thank you. The other thing that I've come to realize is this weird position of privilege and also sort of um, problem that I call the too many hoodies problem. When you go speak at a conference, a thing that you frequently get as a speaker gift is a hoodie. And if you speak at one or two conferences a year, this is a great gift because now you have like a nice high quality hoodie. I am right this moment wearing a DevOps Days Baltimore hoodie. But if you speak at a lot of conferences, you end up with too many hoodies and you're like, please don't give me another hoodie or another t-shirt. Like I don't want another conference t-shirt or ceramic mug or anything that's like a totally normal gift because I am saturated on them because I am at this like high performance level. Shout out to conference organizers. Chocolate never goes fat. You can always eat more chocolate. Yes. And my kids get excited about hoodies, but they get more excited about chocolate. Chocolate is the best, and uh, and ceramic mugs with handles are the worst. <laughs> I recently got a cutting board as a speaker gift. Oh, that's a great oh, idea. Tax flat. I know. Yeah. Uh, is- although, right now, I am drinking out of a that conference mug with the handle, but it's I- like this big, cool mug, and actually, like, we brought wine to the hotel, and, and then they didn't have any cups except crappy plastic and paper cups. And so we were so happy to have this. And also we had leftovers and we had a microwave, but we had no plate. So we totally nuked my mac and cheese in this mug. And it was fabulous. That is fabulous. But did you have trouble getting it home? Uh, we drove, so no. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> so, that's unusual. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at your, I, I think I will not name this conference, but it was a giant cellophane wrapped food basket full of things six or more ounces i'm like i love the part where you think i checked a bag at all (laughs) you ship this to me because no i'm like yes and and, but you said it was a privilege right it's like this is is kind of beyond a first world problem right exactly like how do you complain about having too many hoodies and like do you reject the hoodie no you gratefully take it and say thank you and leave it in the hotel yeah because they've chosen a perfectly reasonable gift and the problem is with you and your overexposure overexposure i don't actually think it's overexposure because i like staying employed but (laughs) okay so i I have a i have a devrel question both Maddie Strafford and Ken Muggeridge asked about this at Redeploy, again. How do you measure success in developer relations? Oh, me personally, I measure success by the number of people who click on the link after my talk and then continue to go on and do a, a demo. And I measure success by the number of items that I can bring back from developers and put in the roadmap queue. Does that include hoodies? No. No, that only includes like story items. So like I I was just working yesterday on, you know, what are we going to develop in the next quarter? And I'm like, 10 people have asked me for this while I've been on the ground. Like 
they're like, they really, they're worried about technical debt and they want an alert that goes off that tells them when something should get taken out of the code base. And because my developers are awesome, but they're also, you know, in the water like the fish, they don't know how people feel about incurring technical debt. That's really interesting. I work in agriculture, and so our customers are growers and farmers. And I really struggle a lot with like, well, what does a grower want out of this app? I don't know, because I am not a grower, and I don't have the same mindset as that person. And so like, that's a hard thing for me. But I've always thought like, well, if I worked on something where the users were people more like me, then it would be easier. And so it's interesting to hear this story about how like, even when the user's are a very similar demographic to you, it's still not that much easier because you're like so, and it makes sense. Like you're so involved in what you're doing that it's hard to look out of it, even regardless of like who the person is that you're attempting to have empathy with. Exactly. I think there is no substitute for watching people do their jobs to understand what it is they need from you. And uh, if there were like a magic wand I could wave, every developer would get at least one day a year where they sat beside one of their users and just silently watched. Because what users say and what users do is not a one-to-one relation. And, and it's not like a deliberate deception. They just don't remember. And this was never brought home to me more than when I was working for a company that did sort of a software overlay on the Medicare billing system which is horrible, like in a sense, because it's all green screen, 10 key, tab based. Like you cannot imagine how old fashioned this feels, right? But the 50 year old women working in medical billing offices are so fast at that. They never take their hands off the keyboard. They run through this at a million miles an hour because they know what everything is. They know all the billing codes and it's very fast for them to enter it. And so my developers, for reasons that were lost in the midst of history even before I got there, thought that what these people wanted was a more graphical user interface. And also, because they were non-technical, we should make it super simplified. And I just wanted to haul them out by the ear and make them sit next to a medical biller who was trying to work, you know, a quarter the speed that she was used to. And they're like, well, but she's non-technical. I'm like, no, she's extremely technically adept at exactly what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say that there's a quote that summarizes what you were saying, Heidi, which is something like, what people say, what people do, what people say they do are all different things. Yes. <laughs> we talked about this at Redeploy last week with Ugh. an expert can't output. Sorry, this conference is going to come up again and again for the rest of my life. Uh, it was <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, experts can't tell you what's in their heads. No, it's super hard. That's actually a super interesting thing about being a technical writer is figuring out how to retain your beginner learning mindset about something that you know really well. Which gets back to the developers as users thing, because if you think you are your user, (laughs) your users are actually other developers. Heidi, Heidi, you said something earlier about the people using your product both up and down. What does that mean? Oh, so what I want to do is communicate changes in my product down or out to developers that don't know about it or need to know more about it. I want to teach, but I also want to learn and filter things up. 
And so I want to take things from developers in the wild and pull that back to my developers who are insular. Okay, so you want to spread information in both directions. Yes. Uh, yeah, you have the you had your victory conditions of what did they learn or at least what action did they take? Uh, what behavior did they exhibit as a result of your talk? And also, what did you learn from them? Yeah. And if I don't have both of those, then I am uh, just a marketing shill or I am just taking from the community and not giving. I think all learning relationships should ideally flow in both ways like that. I've been I've taken on mentoring recently and we've we've talked about mentoring on the show before. But like I'm really getting used to this idea that like. I'm fostering a relationship where both people should like find it rewarding and both people should be like legitimately getting something out of it, which is amazing. But I think it takes real like conscious effort to be like, this is a relationship about both people and not just about one person. And we're doing that on purpose. Does that make sense? Yeah, I Uh, agree. It is so easy if like the circumstances seem to place you in a position of expertise to be like, here are my learnings. I will sprinkle them among you masses. Thought leadership. <laughs> oh my gosh. And yet I am unironically thrilled when people tell me I'm a thought leader. Like, that's <laughs> the worst part. I'm like, oh. <laughs> what? I feel like that's the established way to pass on knowledge is like to do whatever you're doing to a point where you become an expert and then you're ready to share that with other people as opposed to like the mentorship model that you're talking about, Jamie, where you may not know everything, but you know a little bit more than somebody else. And it seems like that allows you to be more valuable because you're not at this place where you feel like you know enough that you almost have infallible knowledge that you can spread. That's beautiful. That so is. at the point where you think you're ready to speak, you're past the point where you should speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was in the, my programming boot camp, I want to say I was maybe in week six and I had done Ruby for like four weeks and had learned Rails that week. And then that Saturday, I participated in a Rails Girls event, which totally freaked me out. I was very scared to do it because I was like, I don't know anything. How am I supposed to tell somebody else what to do? But doing it was really awesome because I was basically showing a person who knew what I knew six weeks ago, you know, how to get to kind of a step before where I was. And that helped me realize that the mentorship part is actually really useful for both sides, as opposed to like waiting till I was some sort of Rails expert and then deciding that's the time to try to help somebody learn. See one, do one, teach one. Yeah. I think there's something really accessible about learning from someone who just learned it because like they know how hard it is. They know what parts you might get tripped up on because they know what parts they just get tripped up on. And like, it's more of like a conversation where both people can feel comfortable. I feel like other than like someone's telling me like, this is how you do it. And I'm like afraid to ask them any questions, having someone be like, I just did this. And like, I didn't think I was going to get it, but I did. And now you are, I think it's like a much more like friendly way to learn. It, It fosters relationships. Definitely. Like what we're talking about, because you you know that you're not the almighty expert. So you really are more humble about what you do know. And then it allows you to kind of help another person, but not feel like you have like done society some sort of favor by showing up. Yeah. Ever really feel like I know something until I'm able to teach it. 
Yes. And, and when you teach it, you learn from the people who are also learning, right? Because how can we think we know the way to do things based entirely on our own experience? We right. have to listen to the other people. So this last week after redeploy, I went to Write the Docs Cincinnati, which was awesome. And it was very much a um, tech writing nerds all together. Like I got to hear a talk from the guy who wrote every page is page one. And we were talking about like rhetorical constructs of technical writing and, and markup languages and markdown languages and restructured text. And it was super inside baseball. But it was also very much a chance where we could all be like, okay, well, I'm coming at it from this angle and I'm coming at it from this angle. And what could we make together that would make it better for everybody? Yeah, that actually ties in with what you're talking about, how even if your users are developers like you, they all come from different contexts. And so you can't just assume they're all going to want exactly the thing you want. You need to understand their context. And it's the same with that where you want to bring the things together. Okay, have you done an episode on life hacks for ADD? No, but that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) I've just been thinking about all of these hacks that I have, in addition to taking medication, so that I could, you know, show up for planes on time and get shit done. And uh, the school year is starting, so I'm thinking about it extra, because both my kids are also ADD. Because it turns out that if you have two parents who have a trait, your odds of having kids who have that trait are pretty high. How old are your kids? 15 and 13. Congratulations on keeping them alive this long. Thank you. So far, so good. And what are your hacks for ADD that you can pass on to them? Well, so it's interesting. There's two types. Well, okay, there's more than two types of ADD, but there are two types that I'm dealing with. One is inattentive type, which means that you do not notice things. You can walk across things on the floor and not see them. People could be talking to you and you could not hear them because you were thinking about something else. Like, it's just the the world is sensory different for for people. Like, only very loud things come up, really. Based on your superpower, I'm guessing this one is not you. That one is not me, no. But it is two of the people I live with. And so uh, there's a bunch of things that we do for that, like routines and rituals. The, the kid has a uh, cartoon list of things on the door, not to forget, like, do you have your school bag? Do you have your cello or cello? Viola, being inattentive, she doesn't always notice the list on the door because that's how it goes. But one of the compromises we've come to is she would like to be alone a lot because she's 13 and an introvert and she wants to be able to eat in her room. And I'm like, yes, but when you eat in your room, you leave all the cups and everything. So we came to a compromise where after like a year of yelling at her not to eat in her room, she has one place in her room that she stashes all the dirty dishes and then we can clear that up. I'm like, okay, that's a compromise I'm willing to live with. I'm not super happy about it, but it is better than complete noncompliance. The problem is that I have distractible type, which means that I notice when things are out of place or when you've left your shoes someplace stupid or when you've left your water bottle someplace dumb. And so visual clutter is distressing for me. So I'm living with two people who don't notice visual clutter and it doesn't bother them. And uh, I and one of the other kids notice visual clutter and it bothers us all the time. And we can't tune it out. Like the people who can listen to fan noise as a soothing sound are mysterious to me. I'm like, (laughs) I always 
I always hear the fan. The best thing about MacBooks is they don't make noise. (laughs) I'm like, I would buy them just for that because they don't buzz at me constantly. And so as this mixed family, what we've had to do is figure out how to deal with this together. So like everybody has a place that they can keep in the kind of order that they want, barring like serious health violations. So my wife has a maker space that looks like a 3D printer had six tuplets and then something terrible happened to them. <laughs> it's behind a curtain. I don't That's have to look such at a it. descriptive <laughs> thing to say about a room. And my daughter literally, like, I'm hoping by the time she leaves home, she has figured out how both trash cans and laundry baskets work. But I'm not really holding my breath. It doesn't seem likely. But it's in her room. And I close the door. And I have a crafting space that I keep exactly the way I want. And Sebastian keeps his room exactly the way he wants. And then we just have, you know, a constant low-level battle over the state of the living room and the kitchen. Is this in any way related to what you had mentioned? I don't even know if we had it on the episode yet. Where you had mentioned, Heidi, that you don't bring your computer into the crafting room. Yes, because I'm distractible. If the computer bings or beeps at me, I've turned off. This is my like number one distractible ADD life hack. I've turned off all my notifications. Nothing makes noise at me. If you want to call me, I hope you're prepared to wait until I look at my phone. Because otherwise, I'll just be diverted from doing things all the time. So if there's anything with notifications in my craft room, I won't get any crafting done because I'm working or emailing or not emailing because ADD in women interacts in really interesting ways with anxiety. Surprising no one who has dealt with either of these, Um, (laughs) which, which means that I'm like, wow, I should wait until I am less distracted and we're ready to focus on answering that email. As if there is such a time. (laughs) As if there is such a time. And as if I will be less reluctant to answer the email when I'm late to answer it. Now I feel guilty and distracted and like I should be doing more. And, and now I'm just like trying to, to hog tie my, my anxiety brain in a corner so that I can get some work done. And it's of course making notification noises at me. So I'm distracted by it. I'm like, stop that. So yes, turn your notifications off. That's my number one hack. My number two hack is figure out what you can control in your environment and control it rigidly because Everybody deserves a space that they can look at and feel relaxed. It doesn't have to be big. It could be a windowsill, but it has to be yours. I really think this is what Virginia Woolf was talking about with A Room of One's Own, is that in so many ways, people socialized as men tend to regard the house overall as women's space. Like this is how we end up with the whole concept of man cave. But Women don't feel like it is because what they're doing is keeping it up to a certain social standard and also remediating the effects of other people living there and leaving their crap all over. And so it doesn't feel like your space. It feels like a chore. And I think think acknowledging that really makes a difference in understanding why you feel overwhelmed sometimes, or at least why I do. I have to say that the, one of the great things about travel is hotel rooms. Um, oh, yeah. Because they are so soothingly bland and generic, and there's nothing you have to do in them. It's like a chore-free zone. 
because, of course, every superpower has its flip side. And the flip side of noticing when people leave things in stupid places is that I'm noticing things in stupid places all the time and tracking that. <laughs> and yeah, so, whether you want to or not. Whether I want to or not. It's like this huge cognitive load. And so when I am in a hotel room and everything is where it ought to be, like I can walk in, I can put my stuff in the closet and close the closet door. And I mean, sure, it's decorated like a hotel room, but it's almost like a pop-up overlays in Sims, where it's just like chore pop-up overlays. Pick up glasses, vacuum floor, none of that. It's my favorite thing about hotel rooms. I also like how you can't lose stuff under the bed because the like bed is like attached to the floor the whole way. I love yes. that too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was noticing that my late, last hotel room was designed so that you could see from the door the entire shower, and you couldn't accidentally forget things because you could see it all. I'm like, that's genius. I mean, you probably didn't design it that way. Although, given how many people leave things in hotel rooms, including me, maybe they did. You know what struck me about what you were saying about like the space and understanding why you feel overwhelmed was also like allowing yourself to feel the emotions about stuff that you like naturally feel. Like I have a library in my a small library in my house that I like kind of installed and it's like my space. And if anyone steps foot in my space, like A, I magically know no matter where I am. And B, like, I'm very upset about it. Even if they're, like, not touching anything, I'm like, just, you were in my room. I still kind of have that feeling. And at first I was like, this is stupid. Like, it's, if someone walks through my library and doesn't touch anything, like, they didn't hurt it. You know what I mean? But then on the other hand, I'm like, if I'm going to feel anxiety that other people were in my library, it's pretty easy to just be like, I would really prefer if you stayed out of my library. And, like, giving myself the kind of room to be like... I feel this way about it. It's not necessarily like the most sensical feeling I've ever had, but regardless, like I'm having it and I can kind of respond to it, I think is like a really powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of people use their cars this way, which is fascinating to me because I'm not very car oriented, but I think a lot of people use their cars as their personal space. And that part of the reason we feel this need for space that belongs just to us is because we are so connected all the time and so interlinked with other people and other humans. Like maybe if I lived alone, I wouldn't have this deep need, but I don't. And I haven't ever. I really love what you're saying about it being about a room of one's own, because um, I I realized over time that I had that same need to just have a space that was mine because the last time I could remember really feeling like that was when I was growing up and I had my own room and so I kind of made my home office that space because like what you said about the home not really being yours is definitely my experience I feel like every room is a compromise for what's going to work for whomever's going to use it including me but then my office is my office and I'm like you, Jamie. I know when people have been in my office, I don't want you to touch my stuff. I like my stuff a certain way. And I do that with my car. And it is kind of this reclaiming of a space because it feels like, especially as an adult, you don't really get the privilege of just being able to say, this is mine, all mine, made for me. And I'm not sharing. Yeah. And I think that's especially potent as a parent because for a lot of years, you don't really get body autonomy 
And it's not just pregnancy and nursing. It's very much like if a small child comes running up to you and clings to your knees and is crying, it's very difficult to say, yeah, I know you're having emotions, but I need to not be touched right now. Just sort of suck it up. And so in the absence of body autonomy, having physical autonomy for a little bit is super helpful. Yeah, I loved going back to work when my babies were little, got to leave them with their grandmother and go like where I could go to the bathroom by myself. That was kind of no, nobody <laughs> demands your attention while like, uh, like two minutes, kids, two minutes, please. No, I actually went back to work super early after I had my kids like three weeks. Yeah, well, so we were young. I mean, it was planned, but we were 25. And I was by far the larger wage earner. And so I left them home with their other parent. And I was so happy. I don't actually like infants. I mean, I like to snorkel them for about four minutes and <laughs> sniff their head. And then I'm done. Exactly. Other people's babies are great. <laughs> yeah, because you can give them back. And this is actually something that I want to say to all the people who are thinking about having babies. You can be a perfectly good mother without liking infants. That's that's okay. And also a father. But I think dads get it less. And so like, I went back to work and I was like, yes, no one is touching me. No one is up against my skin. Uh, selfishly, Heidi, I really want to ask... Because uh, I experience this distractible thing and the fan noise drives me nuts and the visual clutter. I struggle with that too. And the little chore pop-ups that every time you walk into a room, there's six things calling, put me away. How do you deal with returning from a trip? Well, I've gotten to the point where I no longer have a hysterical screaming fit. Um, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, that took that took some counseling, honestly. <laughs> so I came home last night at 10 and... I'd been gone 11 days. The sheets haven't been changed. I'm uncertain about the state of the cat litter, but something in this house feels really bad. Oh, no. Yeah. The the dining room table was covered in cruft, not like food, but like four days yeah. of mail or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't want my kids and my spouse to feel like the first thing that happens when I show up is like angry lawbringer. Doom. Yeah. And so I work really hard to say like, hi, I missed you. It's nice to see you. I take my luggage downstairs and I go into my craft room and I close the door with my back to the door. And sometimes I cry because it's just so overwhelming and distressing after a day of travel to get in and experience all of this. But they have been living a life in a way that is comfortable for them. And part of the sort of deal that we make when we travel for work is I'm leaving you with a lot of stuff that I would normally maintain. I hope you maintain it, but it's usually my chore. So like blaming you for not doing my chores seems unjust. The children are alive. They got fed food. The cat more or less got its insulin shots. Like none of this is catastrophic. This just annoying, really, really annoying. And one of the interesting things that I've been doing since I've been traveling more and I have fewer days at home is not fixing it. It used to be I would come home from a long trip and it would be a disaster. And I'd walk in and I'd spend the three days I had at home fixing it so that it would be all nice for them. Right. They don't care. If they cared, they would do it themselves. So 
it is obviously my damage that I think folded clothes and vacuumed floors are unessential to happiness. And recognizing that has made it a lot easier for me to just sort of live with the the disaster for the, you know, literally my next trip is in five days. And so I'll probably change the sheets on the bed because it bothers me. I'll probably do the dishes once because I don't know. Nobody can do it. Washing pants. <laughs> washing pants is obviously advanced level skills, man. It kind of is, though. Evidently. like Heidi, I feel called out. You would not be able to live with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, like, accepting that this is a different standard. The thing that the counselor said to me when we were having these fights, like, we went to see a marriage counselor, and he was genius and did a lot of family systems work was it is very difficult for people who have had traumatic childhoods to hear the difference between this thing is upsetting to me and you are upsetting to me and that was really kind of revolutionary like to say will you please take the garbage out is not like will you please take the garbage out you sack of filth no the garbage is is the sack of filth the garbage is a sack of filth, which is how I always intended it, but I didn't realize a person could hear it another way. Mm. And I'm very much a, if you do the love languages theory, I'm a gifts of service person. If I want to tell someone I love them, I will make their environment nicer and I will do work for them. And that's how I want to indicate it. But that's not how everybody indicates it. And if you're in a marriage where your gift is one thing and the other person's gift is another thing, you have to figure that out because my spouse's gift, like how she receives love is like affectionate touch and words of affirmation. And I'm sort of like, well, of course I love you. Haven't we been married like 22 years? I'm just checking. <laughs> like, duh. Did you but, see um, that kitchen I cleaned? <laughs> exactly. See, I, I cleaned everything. I folded all your clothes while you were gone. And I vacuumed and your side of the bed is all picked up and everything is neat and clean for you. And no, she didn't because, <laughs> because inattentive type, like she might distantly notice that she didn't trip on things, but it didn't actually mean anything to her. And so that was really hard because I'm like, but I did all this work to make you feel happy and it doesn't make you feel happy. What am I supposed to do? Tell you things with my mouth face? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, no, I'm a public speaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, calibrating that stuff is really hard. It is. Yeah, and the thing with the folded clothes and the cleared off dining room table, I've I've come to realize it's kind of like code. Everybody has their things that they get right. Like some people will make sure every class has a test and other people will make sure it's formatted correctly. And other people will, uh, I don't know, upgrade libraries that, there's there's an infinite amount of things that we should do to make our code all well crafted and pretty and perfect and we can't possibly do them all because libraries upgrade faster than we can keep up with them. Yeah, I was going to be like, "Jess, are you sure there are people that upgrade libraries?" Yeah, we Oh, we it have, itches at me. We, we totally <laughs> we have a couple of them at work. And I'm like, "Why are you doing that? It's getting in the way of my feature editions." <laughs> but but it's like that with with laundry too like i really care that the laundry is folded and i really care that there's a trash bag in the trash can wow but other people you rebel 
<laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Other people want the counter clean. Or they'll stop the toilet paper. They're good about that. So we each have our little things. And just because I think it's absolutely crucial that the big plates all be in this part of the cupboard doesn't mean that's the most important thing in the world. It's just the thing I personally choose to use as a standard for are the dishes put away correctly. And other people have different standards, like did you use tabs instead of spaces? And are your function parameters aligned to the right? <laughs> yes. You can so- do code review in real life, too, because, like, my fiancé folds his shirts differently than me. And, like, I will give code review. The folded shirts. If I care about folding shirts, and if I care about that trash bag, it just becomes my job. It is my job to put the bag in the trash because then I can't get mad at anyone else about it. And it's the same with code. If you want the stars in my block comments al- uh, aligned, do not fail my build. I have a blog post about this coming out next week, actually. Write a program that aligns the stars and make it make it run every time the commit happens. And then poof, everyone's happy. So in code, if you are the person who notices the vast majority of things, how do you set aside the time to fix the things that bug you without losing time to make forward progress? Well, if you can make a program to do it, that's, that's the only way to keep it true. It's like okay. hiring cleaners. We yeah, hire them all about linters. So I can't get mad about that. Yeah, yeah linters well, with auto fix. If it's just a linter that breaks my build, screw it. Not okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, my linters have auto fix. Hey. I mean, what I always do is just be the one who advocates for the change. Like I made sure we upgraded from rails three to four and then from four to five and then from five, one to five, two. And like I did most of the work, but I made sure that it was prioritized with the rest of the team's work by being the one that said, we got to do this. These are what, these are the features we need. This is what will benefit for us. So, you know, I make sure it works with the team's process rather than just going off and spending two months doing an upgrade. But one of the things that, that struck me about this conversation is the if you think about your preferences as this is good code, this is bad code, this is the way a house should run, this is like not the way a house should run, then you're going to be in conflict with all the people that don't think that way, right? They're going to have their different preferences and, and it's going to be stressful. But if you think of them as, well, it's it's one of my quirks is that I always notice, like it's an unread notification to me if I see that there's a library update available and we haven't installed it. Like that's an unread, like it's, it's screaming at me. Other people don't feel that way. And if I think of it that way, then it's just like, oh, that's my thing. I can be in charge of like how I deal with that and how I bring that to the team and, you know, how how we work with the team and prioritize and and compromise. And same with the household. Like these are the important things that I want to work on. You have those things that you want to work on. Let's figure out how we both work on them because we both each value them separately. Then it's much more harmonious place to start than from. Well, this is the only proper way to run a household or a code base. It turns out you can wash dishes but with both sponges and dish rags, but... <laughs> <laughs> but... But not if there are any other dishes in the sink. No. <laughs> the sinks are for pouring things in and not for setting things in, but... <laughs> and it's very interesting to me because a lot of what I'm working on at my employer launched Darkly is basically clean fights in merge. So what we're saying is you should put a feature flag on every feature you write. And then because you're all working out of the same code base and merging really often, you don't have any long-lived feature flags. 
And so you don't have any of these like, but I worked on this like ornate table centerpiece for six months. What do you mean the table's gone? We want people to be able to have these fights sort of cleaner and faster without the giant merge conflict. And I think it's a really interesting concept, like how do we reduce conflict when multiple people are working in a code base? How do you make it smaller? Yeah. By making it more frequent? Yeah, with tiny deltas. But everybody can see all of your tiny deltas. I find that like if I if I do that, if I break a code change up into like little steps so that I can do each step separately and make those tiny deltas without breaking stuff, it's harder and it takes longer than doing it in a big use all my working memory at once push, which should be okay, except then I, I don't get all the way through it. Mm-hmm. I get half a centerpiece. Yeah. It's just the stems. <laughs> yeah. What I'd like is for there to be like a holographic projection of the centerpiece on the table because the code is there. You're just not implementing it. Ooh. Yeah. No, that's the whole cool thing about feature flags is like it's, it's Schrodinger's code. You're deploying broken code. You're just not releasing it. Interesting way to think about it. I love that. Yeah. And meanwhile, the feature flag is hanging out there being, look, there's a big fat ugly to do here. Exactly. And then when you're done with it, when the centerpiece and the table are united in beauty, you can take out the feature flag and be like, the centerpiece has always been here. It's already in place. You right. can touch it now. You can touch it now, but it's never been like half a centerpiece because it's never been fully released. And meanwhile, the cats don't even bother knocking it over because they've tried that before and it didn't work because it wasn't really there. Exactly. Man, that would be the best. (laughs) If only cats had that kind of memory. Yeah, but they're not supposed to be on the table and this is the thing I enforce heavily. But I have a feeling based on their behavior when I come home that I am possibly alone in this enforcement. It gets down to there's a big difference between making something true like making the code change in the first place and keeping it true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which involves those auto fixing linters or tests. Automated tests are about let's keep this feature working or um, yeah. Paying house cleaners to do it. (laughs) Yeah. But house cleaners won't get your cat off the table. Like there's always things that you have to do yourself. Yes. As a collective, like you have to agree on the style guide as a collective. Yes. Because otherwise we fight with our lint rule changes. Right. And I think that's an interesting thing about having been a technical writer for all these years is I have all of this, like, the hell of style guide committees. You think it's bad in code. You should see it when it's people who care about where their commas are. But, oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's a thing. Hours, hours of my life wasted on this. But it's so interesting to be like, can we get to consensus on this? Like, unless you're using YAML, which is here to make me cry, like, do spaces or tabs really matter? Do they? Like, are we creating distinct, like, sometimes, sure, depends on your language, but what are the battles worth fighting is always the question worth asking, whether it's in a relationship or a work relationship. Like, is this thing worth hurt feelings or time or energy or is it a thing we could let go can we say whatever way you put the toilet paper on the roll is fine as long as you put toilet paper on the roll and if i want it turned the other way i can turn it the other way 
myself, because if it's something that I care about, but it's not like objectively improvably a negative for the code base, then it's just, it's my chore. And if I want to keep it true, then I keep it true. Yeah, exactly. And this is totally like in keeping with this podcast where we like dip in and out of now we're talking about code. Now we're talking about actual life. Can you even see the line? (laughs) (laughs) What if code is actual life? There is a physicist who says that that's the case. Oh, that's true. I don't think it's life until it can self-reflect, until it can think about its own thinking about itself. Well, conscious life, that is. It could be It could be like bacteria-level life, just um, more easily. But yeah, but that's a whole discussion. I have that's another podcast. Eight-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> we should do reflections. Okay. Yeah. I have one. This was a lot of stuff. There's a lot to reflect on. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most, Heidi, is when you were talking about the counseling and you were saying how you didn't realize that you said it, but it could be heard in another way and that that was a big light bulb. I feel like you could take that and broadcast that to so many parts of just living, that there's a lot of what you perceive and how you feel and what seems to be universal. And then you realize, if you do realize, that it's not always received that way. And that if you can at least become conscious of the fact that it may not be received that way, it can make a big difference. And I kind of feel like this is a little bit related to what Jamie was talking about in the beginning about how they always thought that if they were like the users that they were developing for, that it would be easier. But then you realize that it doesn't really make a difference because when you're on the other side, it's still not the same thing, even if you think it's the same thing. Yeah, I think my reflection is, is very similar. I think that part of the conversation was really meaty. And back to what I was saying earlier about how if you think about your, like what you need out of your household or your code base as being, you know, your preference, it, it allows you to work with other people who have different preferences much more easily. And I find myself, I'm not particularly dogmatic about these things, but I think bringing that thought to a conversation with other people and maybe helping them come around to that same sort of thinking will help those conversations be more successful in the future. My reflection is similar. I think it's about the fact that people are so different, which I guess like I know that people are different, but the idea that like there's always somebody that's going to care about something. Um, and like the thing that got me thinking about this was when I made, I made the joke about like, Oh, well, who is it? Like, that updates libraries and a bunch of people were like me I update libraries and I'm like oh that's so good because like that's so far removed from something that I would ever do that like I don't even think people do it but I'm so glad that there are people like that and I'm like I should have more of those people around me and this idea that people are so modular that you can like put a group together it's like one person is good at this and one person is good at this and one person is good at that and like create a group that kind of covers all the basis without like forcing anyone to do something that isn't natural to them is something that we've been trying to do it at my company lately too. And so it's been something that's on my mind. And I think it's just like a beautiful, a really beautiful way to like work together with people. Sweet. My reflection goes back to something you said really early, Heidi, which was all of my caring goes to 11. And that's wonderful. And one of the challenges in life is like keeping that enthusiasm without imposing that everyone be enthusiastic about the same things. 
So you like go out and you teach and you spread that enthusiasm without judging people because they aren't enthusiastic about the exact same things you are. And that works at home and in the code base. I think my reflection is so interesting to have a place where we can discuss like the emotional needs of having your own space and wanting things your own way and yet having to compromise both in code and in life. And I'm really excited that there are other people out there who I can talk to that have this shared experience. And it's the thing I like about having a developer relations community too, is that what I want in the world is people who are sharing similar experiences and tackling the problems in different ways so I can get some parallax. Because I have this problem where I can think of one way to solve a problem and I keep trying it until, I don't know, I run out of wall to run my head against. But if I have other people who are tackling a similar problem, I have ways to go around or over the wall. Great. Yeah, that is very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Heidi. Thank you. Uh, are there any um, URLs or uh, things that you would like to share with people to find out more about what you do and what you've written? What's their uh, action item to take if they learned something from this podcast? Uh, if they want to learn how to create holographic centerpieces, they could go look at launchdarkly.com or futureflags.io. If they want to read more about how to do travel and uh, lady conference speakering, uh, HeidiWaterhouse.com. And of course, we will put those links in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you.